to women in venture capital. I'm Rushvina, Chief of Staff at General Catalyst, with prior experience in finance and early stage VC. And I'm Anvita, Senior Product Manager at UiPath with experiences across tech startups and venture capital. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple. Increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in the industry. Our guest today is Joanna Kwong. Joanna is the Senior Vice President of Product and Impact at Illumin Capital, an impact fund of funds addressing systemic inequity by reducing racial and gender bias in investing. Prior to Illumin, Joanna worked as an associate at Third Sector, a national nonprofit technical assistance organization, advising our government agencies on how to reshape their policies, systems, and services towards better outcomes for all people. Joanna started her career at Wellington Management in product management and investment analytics. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing. So we'll get started uh, by talking about your career. You spent quite a bit of time in the nonprofit sector before joining Illumin to focus on impact there. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with third sector and some of the projects that you worked on? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I was interested in why there's a lack of alignment between philanthropic, private and public market and government dollars in terms of the impact space. I mean, I grew up close to Wall Street and my dad worked on Wall Street. So I knew that there was a lot of financial capital out there. Um, I also saw from my time teaching at a freedom school in the Mississippi Delta, the importance of social capital in addition to financial capital. But I saw that Often philanthropy, government, and private markets, including obviously stocks and bonds, um, are focused on solving similar global issues, but we're doing so in silos rather than doing so kind of in the same room. So for me, I was really excited about joining third sector to align those different forms of capital and bring them together. So one of the first projects I worked on was one of the first social impact bonds that ever was created. It was focused on getting high risk justice involved men in the state of Massachusetts into the workforce. We all know that people with involvement in the justice system often struggle to get a job. Um, and even if they go through workforce training, uh, there's a huge likelihood that people recidivate back into the prison system. So this project was interesting because like all social impact bonds, we aligned ahead of time on what outcomes are significant for that population. And throughout my time at third sector, we began doing more and more community engagement as well. So asking the people who are actually being served by these services, what outcomes are meaningful for you? Um, so that we could work backwards into structuring a contract that paid for outcomes that were significant to the people who are ultimately receiving social services. So in this example that I talked about, the outcomes were, one, if you're high risk, it's even getting to the program at all in terms of showing up for an eight to 10 week training program. Um, so there was kind of some payments for enrollment. Then it's, did you complete the program? So some payments for graduation from the program. Then using state data, which, you know, that government data is really the most trustworthy in terms of employment status and wage, looking at whether or not people are keeping a job and whether or not their wage is increasing, as well as if there's a decrease in recidivism. So another project that I was really passionate about was a higher education project. It was focused on getting alternative learners to and through graduation. So that means enrolling, persisting through college, 
and graduating. Um, often these were two-year degrees, um, associate's degrees at public universities. And one thing that was interesting here was, for example, if we're talking about adult learners, those are learners that often have other barriers to even getting physically to school, let alone persisting and achieving graduation rates. So when we were working with them, we had to consider things like transportation in rural communities or childcare if we're working with adult learners who never got to get their college degree, but have children who they need support uh, to take care of. Um, and so I really liked that that focus on wraparound supports beyond just higher education as one bucket area really allowed different government agencies to come together, as well as allowed philanthropic dollars to kind of fill in the gaps of services to make sure these really at-risk populations are getting the services that they need. But it's allowing government to do something more innovative and use their dollars more effectively to actually pay for impact and pay for what's working rather than paying for often a social service where it's the same contract year over year and you don't actually tie any dollars to whether or not that service is achieving the outcomes that mm -hmm. you want. So you've already paid, you're asking for reporting, but that doesn't make any difference in how much money that service provider is getting. So I really saw this technical assistance as a critical role to take these different ideas of what could work um, and these, this work being done in silos and really operationalizing it as kind of a new way of doing things, but all in, in alignment. That's super interesting. Um, I, I want to go back to an earlier point. You said your dad worked on Wall Street and you chose to go into nonprofit Um I'm really curious on a personal front how that passion to be helpful and, you know, not just helpful, but to be helpful in an actionable way, how they really come about. Yeah, it's actually funny that you referenced that because um, I was fortunate enough to be part of this undergraduate merit scholarship program called the Robertson Scholars Leadership Program. As part of it, you went to either Duke or UNC, which are obviously big sports rivals, but then you had to go live at the other campus for a semester. Uh, that was a way of trying to kind of bridge the two universities and allow us to take advantage of the two very different kinds of schools. When I was interviewing for that scholarship, when I was a high school senior, I actually, to a panel of all ex-Wall Street or current Wall Street folks, basically said, I never want to work on Wall Street. Um, because for me, I was really focused on kind of what is going to create justice in a community? I think a lot of that is my lived experience, um, being the daughter of Chinese immigrants and seeing kind of the ways that, quote unquote, I saw that the world wasn't fair growing up. So even I saw through my dad's career on Wall Street that the people who went to the happy hours more and did more of that networking, um, you know, their kids played sports with their colleagues' kids. They kind of got ahead, right, when it came to bonus time. Um, or came to promotions. And um, my dad wanted to spend a lot of time with us and is coming from kind of that mentality of like the classic American dream of like, if you work hard and put your head down, people will see your value. Um, and I kind of saw like the world isn't quote unquote fair in that way. I think for me, that's also where I was really privileged. I got this amazing undergraduate scholarship. I went to an amazing high school Um that was a boarding school and very, you know, expensive and very elite. And I really wanted to 
um, extend my social capital that I had to others in pursuit of creating a more just world because I saw the the ways that it's sort of not fair. You know, if you your family has money when you're in eighth grade, how that determines your entire career path. Um, and really wanted to extend that capital. And I think my thinking around capital access and its complete importance in people's life trajectories was really deepened during my time in Mississippi, where you know, if you lived on one side of the railroad tracks, I could physically see how your house was nicer. Um, and also you were white versus one block away on the other side of the railroad tracks. Your house was not as nice. You didn't have a car. You had to work numerous jobs. You couldn't even access the catfish that was farmed in your neighborhood. Um, so for me, I think seeing that clear outcome disparity really led me to want to commit my entire career to kind of expanding access to capital. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and what a great lived experience um, story. And I really appreciate you being very candid about how this came about. Um, and kudos to you for being a high schooler, telling things as they are, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought yeah, I didn't I get the scholarship, but uh, <laughs> I guess I appreciated the contrarian. Yeah, take. but you're doing what you love today. So, you know, I think it's a win there. Um, and I want to talk about what you're doing today, actually. So really curious, you know, you are third sector. Why did you decide to join a VC firm? And why Illumin? Can you talk a little bit more about your role specifically as an SVP of product and impact? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with why Illumin. So Illumin's a fund of funds. We invest in private markets, uh, primarily impact funds. And that was really appealing to me because rather than working directly with portfolio company founders, we get to work with one level up. So fund managers and change how they think about dollars going out the door. And that's not just our investment amount, but it's how all dollars go out the door. So I really liked that element of behavior change being woven into an asset allocation role. Um, ultimately, for me, working at Third Sector was really fulfilling, but it was very difficult to scope in and add a focus on DEI to our scopes of work, because often those scopes of work, being a technical assistance provider, were funded also by philanthropic grants. Whereas at Illumin, we're able to use our role as an asset allocator to ensure people are showing up for DEI programming, are showing up and transparently sharing their diversity data to show that what they say they're going to do is actually what they're doing. Um, and then in terms of venture, um, that's where companies get their start. It's really like that first chance, you know, that first opportunity to even build an MVP or get your start. So for me, like college access, you know, your higher education starts in kindergarten when you need teachers and community members to invest in your growth and even get you to the point where you can get to college. Um, that's how I think about VC as well in terms of that kind of those building blocks or that foundation of having the opportunity to even scale your idea for a product or service that is going to hopefully also reach underrepresented customer bases and populations that don't have, for example, culturally competent skincare or hair care. Uh, I say that as someone who exclusively uses Asian skincare because a lot of great American brands like make me break out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also really liked how just dollars go out the door faster. So you can be a lot more nimble, a lot more creative. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. But uh, I have a lot of ideas about how VC dollars can also create a more 
um, impactful venture capital space as well. Um, in terms of my role as SVP of product and impact, I basically lead the full life cycle of everything at Illumin Capital touching on DEI and impact. So that's everything from due diligence to the cornerstone of our work, which is supporting our portfolio managers on bias reduction to also impact and diversity measurement and management. So that entire kind of performance feedback loop. Um, and really, I'm making sure that we're preventing impact washing or DEI washing uh, and making sure that this work is actually being authentically done. So if we double click a little bit into like what it means to actually support fund managers, we're basically somewhere between like a university and a coach. Um, so we're walking hand in hand with the general partners, but also principals, associates, back office support folks, admin uh, to change both their minds and change their actions. So helping to change or evolve hiring processes, evolve investment processes, um, really anything from how is investment committee run or operated? Like what is your agenda or what are your norms for investment committee to top of the funnel? Like how are you meeting um, founders that don't get a warm introduction to get in the door? Those are the kinds of problems that we're supporting our fund managers on. And I think one thing that's really important is that relationship aspect. So meeting people where they are, not creating shame around the concept of bias, which is just a set of shortcuts that everyone uses and everyone has. That doesn't mean you're explicitly racist or sexist, right? But getting people to walk that path and be willing to go on a journey of learning about DEI. Um, and then for us also, in terms of measuring that, we have qualitative data that we measure to understand our people's attitudes changing and quantitative data that we measure around our people's um, firms getting more diverse or their portfolios getting more diverse and inclusive. Um, so kind of closing that feedback loop, using the data to show like, okay, what's actually moving the needle? What's actually working in terms of our ongoing partnership with our fund managers that also, by the way, lasts our entire investment period. So going back to like, why did I want to do this? Okay, we're investors, we're we're in it for the entire course of our investment period. So when we write into our side letter with our fund managers that they need to show up for DEI programming, that, that means like you're going to keep showing up when we're asking hard questions about like, why is this language gendered? Why are you doing things this way when you could do it this other way? And they'll actually respond to us. And I, this is a great segue into my next question, because I do want to talk a little bit more um, tactically about some of the processes you talked about. One was diligence, one was hiring, and a lot of funds have actually been trying to integrate DE&I into these processes. And when you are a founder, you have a startup, you have a vision, you have a goal, how and you have to follow a series of steps, right? Raise money, be accountable to shareholders and to your team, grow the team, um, go through a certain number of revenue and profit. So I know that DE and I, when you talked about impact washing, a, a lot of times, you know, it becomes a, a checkbox. And from your experience at Illumin and like just your general view, how tactically, how is it possible to integrate DE&I more effectively into, you know, a portfolio platform? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's so many opportunities. One that we try to do is we don't want people to see DEIs as like separate scope of work that you have to do on top of your day job. We want it to be embedded yep. into your day-to-day work. Exactly. So one thing we do is just like work with the partners people already have. A lot of our funds also have leadership coaches. Um, they're trying to figure out how do we work better together? How do we collaborate better? And there's definitely an inclusion lens there. So we'll actually provide different frameworks or tools. We have these like two page or how to's um, that we'll provide actually to the leadership coach because they get even more face time than we do with fund managers. Um, or another example is like recruiters. A lot of funds use recruiters to help them kind of find diverse candidates. And so we have, for example, a sheet of different partnerships that you can form that are already leaders in terms of diverse representation in venture capital. Um, And then if we kind of keep going with that example, one thing we do internally that we've also created a tool and encouraged our fund managers to do is set internal targets about what you want a hiring pool to look like. So for us, we say, unless the initial candidate pool looks a certain way, we won't move into the first round of interviews. So that gives us an opportunity to use data to inform what's working. For example, we've seen through some hiring processes that, okay, we're pretty underrepresented in terms of our initial pool, which is going to be the group that moves forward, right, through the interview process in terms of Latina women. Let's reach out to um, organizations that are specifically focused on increasing Latina women um, in terms of the venture capital space. So we actually did that. We did outreach to partnerships that we have or folks that we know that could help get the word out about this job so that we can invite more diverse candidates to um, apply. And then obviously all of these elements of hiring are, it's one of the first things that startups do, right? So for us, when we're training fund managers, we also say, please share these tools with your founders um, through like a set of DEI resources or through your regular check-ins with them in order to make sure that you're being equitable at all different parts of the process. Another example is around, we have a scorecard that enables us to, at the very top of our investment pipeline, process both warm outreach and cold outreach. So warm introductions often require you to know somebody who knows somebody uh, who can get you in the door. But uh, a number of there's many amazing companies being started everywhere just because you're not based in the Bay Area or, or New York um, or just can't afford to live in one of the most expensive cities in the States doesn't mean that you're not inherently talented. Um, and I think also speaks to like a lot of that racial wealth gap and gender wealth gap that has been historically entrenched. Um, so we use kind of a regular like top of the funnel process to help um basically process everyone equitably. Uh, And that's another tool that our fund managers have used. And I think it sets kind of that tone of DEI for their portfolio companies much earlier rather than later. So then when you get to a place of actually investing in a portfolio company and having a term sheet, you can embed DEI and it's not a surprise to founders, right? They're like, oh, you've tried to be equitable from the very top of this process. So it's not surprising to me when you have terms that include that you need to have a DEI policy, for example, in your term sheet 
And then our fund managers are helping their portfolio companies come up with a DEI policy, which is another tool we created actually for all of our fund managers. How do you write a DEI policy? How do you help your portfolio companies determine which DEI metrics to collect? Um, that's another element of work that we support our fund managers on so that everyone at all parts of the system, LPs, us as a fund of funds, we're, we're both an LP and a GP, GPs and portfolio companies are all on the same page about how do you define diversity metrics? What data should you be collecting? Um, and then for us, it's also sharing that data back with them so that people can actually see through the data where there are opportunities to improve. That's super useful um, and super insightful. I mean, I think you're you're right. I think I see a lot of the bigger firms um, launching a lot of DEI initiatives, and they're trying to incorporate it more effectively. But it it's really important. The difference really is if you do it at the very beginning versus you know integrated towards the end. It's like timing is really important in how you make it as at the core of your company and your business, and eventually companies you invest in. So there's like a um, flywheel effect um, that goes on there. Um, awesome. This has been a great conversation. And thank you for sharing so much about your work on DNI and what you've seen. And my last question is um, talking about a community that unfortunately is not very well represented in the VC industry. And those are women, um, especially at decision-making um, tables. So I'm, I'm really curious what your observations and experiences have been with gender dynamics in VC, especially being at the forefront of DNI efforts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so, so real. Um, I think there's been too much focus also on representation and not true inclusion. So even when you have women in investment decision-making roles, in quotes, decision-making, um, they're not actually included. So they could be in the room even for that investment committee where you're deciding whether or not you're going to make an investment. Um, but they're not being heard, right? Or they're not being right. given the opportunity to speak. Um, and there's a lot of perception that women are more junior. Like I can't tell you the number of times I've been mistaken for an admin or just been presumed without someone explicitly saying it that I'll be the one taking notes. And that element of like extra labor or office housework is also something that often women do, uh, whether it's explicitly acknowledged or not. So that can include like keeping an office space clean or managing recurring invites, making sure you're looking at the calendar two weeks ahead of time instead of day of and moving things around if you know that people can't make it or you're looking at your male colleagues' calendars and they have a conflict that they you know, haven't thought about kind of that advanced planning element, all of this extra labor isn't rewarded when it comes to promotions, right? But it's almost presumed that people will do it. Um, and I think that really speaks to a lot of these inherent gender dynamics. There's a study that shows that confidence is often conflated with competence. So also I see that onus being put on women to quote unquote, act more like men and project that confidence. Um, or even just for me, I've observed having a, a lower voice, having a deeper voice makes you sound more confident. And so people are more willing to like, listen to you or believe you're better at the job. Um, and that really affects that wage gap as well when it comes to ultimately like how much money you're bringing home or how quickly you rise to be able to establish a track record. Often you're not, even if you source a deal and kind of carry it all the way through, 
you don't get credit for that as part of your track record unless you're like senior enough. Um, There's a really interesting piece that our partners at Stanford Spark wrote about masculine defaults, um, which is kind of that unspoken default to masculine traits rather than feminine traits. So a masculine trait being competitiveness, whereas a feminine trait being collaboration. I think both of those things are necessary, but people tend to value masculine characteristics more. So one of the examples um, that I think really speaks to a lot of women's experience in venture capital showed that um, when this company, a design company, changed its job description for a senior designer from looking for someone who's unreasonably talented and driven to someone who's deeply excited by the opportunity of creating thoughtful digital products that have lasting impact. Just that rephrasing changed the percentage of women in the application pool from 15% to 35%. So that shows that there's a lot of this internalized bias in women around the concept of being quote unquote unreasonably talented, right? We know that men will apply to jobs that they're not qualified for a lot more than women. Women will want to check every box and make sure they actually are qualified. We don't want to waste people's time. And that comes back to bite us um, around then whether or not we're getting those jobs. Um, another interesting example, and this this is my last one, um, is from venture capital pitches. So in this study, they trained women and men to have the same pitches in terms of content and style of delivery. But uh, raiders perceived the women's pitches as less fundable than the men's. So they said that men, the men's pitches were significantly more fact-based, logical, and persuasive than women's pitches. So even if we have gender parity in terms of representation, there's still these biases of people's perception of, of what skills are valued or what defaults exist um, in terms of the norms that kind of are creating barriers to true inclusion for women in the space. It's so interesting that you brought up these studies. Um, you know, it's 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 important to understand that a lot of these biases you don't even realize are present until you, you know, you call them out or, you know, bring them out and have a conversation about it. So I thank you for bringing that up. I think it's a it's a great way to um, end today's conversation. And and here's to hoping that, you know, we recognize and solve these biases more effectively going forward. I think there has been a lot of acknowledgement, but like you said, you know, representation is one thing, being heard in the room is a completely different thing. Um, So let's hope for more women voices being heard. Joanna, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share my perspectives.